1: The levels are set. The mics are ready.
0: Testing, testing, one, two, three. So strap yourself in. It's time to go one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Let's go. Hi everyone. William, Eric, Alexander, all my friends call me Bill, and you're on -on one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Hope everything's going fine for you on this beautiful day, no matter when you're watching, listening, or uh, just hanging out with the program today. So on the program, I have an author by the name of Carly Heath. Carly, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Bill. So, could you explain to my audience who you are as you hold up your book, The Reckless Kind?
1: So uh, my book, The Reckless Kind, uh, comes out November 9th, and it's a young adult novel coming out from Soho Teen, and it's about three misfit teens in 1904 Scandinavia, and they defy the expectations of their rural Scandinavian village in every possible way. They, they leave their families, they go off to live on their own, and in order to maintain their way of life, they need to defeat uh the, the villain of the book in the annual horse race and so it's it's got horse training in it um for the horse kids out there and it's also got um, some social commentary about the importance of following your heart and connecting with the people who are supportive of you and uh you know being true to yourself which i think is a really important message for kids today
0: So, of all places in the world to write about, why Scandinavia at that time? You know,
1: ever since I was a a kid, really, I've loved Norway. I've been obsessed with uh, Norway, specifically the little Norwegian fjord ponies. They're so cute. They're these round uh, ponies that are sort of butterscotch colored. So that's kind of like my initial uh, love for all things Scandinavian. And then after college, I read Christian Lovensdottir, which is uh, a book that came out in the 1920s uh, by Sigrid Undset, and she won the Nobel Prize in Literature for, uh, for uh, Kristen Loppenstotter. And I love that book. I love the setting. I love the characters. And I hated the message of it, though. Okay. Uh, the, the message of Kristen Lovenshawter is basically if you defy your parents, you will suffer uh. and it will be bad for you. And so I think it's really important uh, to, you know, sometimes society restricts you. Right. Sometimes parents don't have the best idea of how you should live with your life. And I think a really important message for kids is to listen to what feels right to you and be true to yourself. And so uh, this book kind of, in a way, has everything that I love about Christian Laverne's daughter, the, the, the beautiful Scandinavian setting, the kind of rich, uh, really emotional characters, uh, but a message that's a little bit more feminist, a little bit more uh, defiant, and a little, bit, uh, a little bit reckless, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how long did it take you to write the book? So, I wrote it actually. I wrote the first draft actually in 2014, 2015. And the most, like, the biggest part of writing a book is the revision process. Uh, and so, the revision process brought me through many, many different drafts of the book. And the original draft that I wrote back in 2014 is unrecognizable for, from what the finished book is. And the, uh, The the really great thing about the publishing industry is that so many people read your book as it's going through the publishing pipeline. So you get so many different perspectives on it. And so you can really refine your craft and make your book as good as it can possibly be. So just in the whole process to getting an agent, I I would send it out to agents, which is like the process of writing a little query letter, sending out sample chapters, sometimes sending up a whole book if they uh if they like your sample chapters and want to read more and uh, i was really lucky to get uh, some agents giving me feedback on my work because they liked it they said it was really close but they they had some suggestions for how to make it better so those agents i'm like i'm so grateful to them because they they told me things that needed to be better about the book. And so uh, during that whole process, I revised, 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 um, eventually uh, connecting with my publisher. And uh, so that's what the agent does. They send out your, once they sign you, they send your book out to publishers and then the publisher who loves your book offers on it buys it. And then it goes through a whole editorial process with the publisher, which is great because not only is the editor there uh, giving you feedback, exploring ways that you can make your book as good as it can be and as emotional as it can be. Uh, You also have other people at the publishing house who are reading it and offering their feedback. And uh, so then by the time it hits the shelves and the whole process, it, I did not know this, but the whole process from when the publisher buys the book to when it lands on shelves is like two years. And so just even on my own, before I got my editor feedback, I'm like, I'm just going to read through this again, (laughs) make, make my own edits. And so it's a lot of time to really think about your book uh, and make changes to it before it hits shelves.
0: Now I spoke to quite a few authors in the past and they went the route of self-publishing. Why didn't you go in that direction?
1: Um, I feel like uh, in order to be really successful as a self-published Author, you have to be really good at marketing, and you have to kind of be like an entrepreneur. Like you have to be in charge of like the publishing. You have to be in charge of the marketing and the publicity. And I really wanted to focus on just making my book the best it can be, and and trust the publicity process to a publisher who has all that, who has distribution with stores and libraries, and can take care of all that business side of things, uh, and I so that's personally the path I chose. Uh, I think self-publishing, if you, if people who are good at that and who can do that, I have so much respect for them because it's like having many many skills and balancing all those skills, and and that that's a lot of work. <laughs>
0: Yeah, some of them do it because they say trying to get a publisher or an agent is very difficult. So instead of going through that process, they have mm-hmm. gone their own route. I actually interviewed someone about a year ago who is a uh, who's a, a doctorate, she has her doctorate in English, and she wrote a book and instead of going their own pub, her a uh, publisher, she went self-publishing and I found out 6 weeks ago that she now has her own publishing company because of how difficult it was for writers like yourself <laughs> to get through the publishing process. So she said, "The heck with everybody else, I'll do it myself." So
1: yeah, that's amazing that she's doing that. And that just—that's a whole skill set of like being an entrepreneur and starting a whole business. That is amazing, and that takes so much. That takes a whole nother skill. I I really like the traditional publishing uh, pipeline because I think. I think in you really, it makes you aware of how much you have to stand out in order to get an agent's attention because agents get thousands and thousands of submissions a year right. and they, they really sometimes only sign one person per year, maybe two. And so, yeah, I was thinking all, like, how can I stand out amongst all of these? And pl- I, I do admit though, I was worried that I would av- ever be able to find an agent and, and a publisher, because my book is kind of weird. It's like Scandinavia. Some people are not, are going to be like, that's kind of a weird setting. And that's kind <laughs> of a, a weird time period. Right. Um, so, and I did get that feedback from, from publishers early on. They're like, you know, historical fiction is a hard sell as it is, but because this book isn't World War II, or a time period that's, like, known and taught in schools, mm-hmm. it might be hard to find a connection with readers and find a market for it. Um, so I'm I'm really grateful that I did connect with the publisher that I did, who who is, like, who saw the value in it, and who saw that this is uh, a great story. Yes, it's a little weird time period, and it's a little weird historical book, but The characters are hopefully something that's going to resonate with readers. I think the characters are great. (laughs) Um, and the (laughs) the story and the uh, all of that might connect with readers.
0: When you sent me the bio info and all the information about this, Mm -hmm. I'm reading through it and I'm going, what does YA stand for? Oh going over and over again, going, what I, I I I know what it is, but I couldn't think of it, which stands for young adult. Yeah, I don't That makes sense <laughs> now. So, but the thing is, is what's really unique about this book is you're dealing with the 1904 time period, but you're also dealing with. Um,
1: I yeah, mean, I have. Yeah, I have
0: historical value. Yeah. Back then, was that really known back then, or are you mm-hmm. putting a a uh, 2021 spin on a story about 1904? Well, queer
1: people have always been around. <laughs> and well, no, 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 I know that. But how did you know about that in 1904? <laughs> I
0: don't think they really wrote about it, did they?
1: Yeah, it was actually really fascinating. I, I'm really fascinated by uh researching history that kind of has been hidden or not quite. Okay brought to light as much as it uh, it could be. And so I found a lot of great uh, historical references um, to kind of pull from and use. And I found some really great Uh, voices from that time period Uh, one particular person who uh, was prominent in my research is a man named edward carpenter who was born in 1844 and he is was an early gay rights activist an early vegetarian and animal rights activist and an early socialist and he wrote these pamphlets that were all about you know a better world. How, you know how to make a uh, society better. How to improve society, and because he was gay and he lived with his partner for uh, most of his life, I believe for over forty years, um, he also wrote about uh, different sexualities and sexual identities and so one of his pamphlets is called homogenic love it's Place in a free society which that's an old-timey term for basically homosexuality and he in his pamphlet which was published i want to say in like 1902 um around there i don't know the exact date but uh he wrote not only uh, do homosexual people exist and same-sex relationships exist but they're actually there's a purpose for them in society, and they make society better. Um, And he points to all the different ways that, you know, uh, um, people who aren't maybe might not be reproducing and making babies, and, you know, are important members of society. uh, And, and his pamphlet's wonderful. I could go on and on about it. Um, he also wrote another pamphlet called uh, Some Traditional, Transitional Types of People, uh, which is basically about like the transgender community in late 19th century, early 20th century, which is you know, uh, really fascinating. And um, I, oh gosh, I learned so many amazing things about queer people in uh, the 19th century. Oh, you know, there, there there, was terminology back then that was a little bit uh, obviously different than the terminology we use now. Um, there were some uh, people called female husbands, which were basically people who were assigned female at birth, uh, but who dress in men's clothes and who identified as men in every way possible um, right. and even married women. And it wasn't until after their death uh, that it was discovered that they had been um you know, female, according to that uh, society's description of what female is. Um, So yeah, these, these stories are so fascinating. And so I just wanted to kind of tell a story that that showcases things as they really are, which is a diverse population of people and characters. I also uh, have a lot of disability representation in my book, um, which is something that's important to me because personally, everyone I know is disabled in some way, whether right. it's an invisible disability like uh like mental illness or whether it's a physical disability. And it's something that we don't really see enough in media and in books. Um, And so I I hope in the future, the stories I tell will kind of represent the diversity of the world, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, I know, because if I take these glasses off, I can't see anything, so that's (laughs) mine. Um, I'm as blind as a bat. But what's interesting about it is that you're doing the, and I, I, and I had a guest on a few weeks ago by the name of Chris Tompkins. We were talking dealing with youth in the, uh, in the queer, queer and uh, gay and lesbian society and how you work with those kids and introduce them because there's not enough representation in media for them to grab onto. And mm-hmm. my issue is, is that I think it's great that everybody's doing this, but I hate the terminology that we use because Mm, I I think that I think the terminology is actually, it's not advancing it. I think it's stepping it back because everybody is so worried about what to say. I know. And my response is just call them by their name. It's not that difficult mm -hmm. or where they're located at or what school, whatever. And I think, I think we categorize a little bit too much, but when you sent this to a publisher, Do you think they were a little bit worried about the characters in the book and what you were touching on in the book that they said, nah, maybe not until Mm -hmm. the one that you're dealing with right now said, this is perfect. This is what we're looking for.
1: You know, it's really interesting. We're in a young adult literature is probably the most progressive area of media. uh, That's that's happening right now. They're are, it seems like every month, there's so many books that, that have diverse characters that represent different uh, sexual identities and gender identities. And so that's really, really awesome. Um, so I didn't necessarily, I would say that the historical time period and the setting was the area that I got the most pushback okay. on um, rather than the diversity of the kids. But I will say, you know, there was one publisher, I think there are some publishers that are a little bit, uh, um, they just aren't educated in some things that are happening right now. Right, and so right. there, there was uh, one publisher who does claim to be a diverse publisher, but who had some really problematic opinions about, uh, I, I Um, how do you say about especially you know queer women I think there's there's a very uh, positive representation in many ways towards queer men and that identity is really positive but when it comes to queer women there is a fear that that it, I think there, it's misogyny in a way. So there's there's that sort of pushback against the female perspective a little bit. And that was really the only time though that I got any problematic feedback from a publisher. Everyone else was really open and supportive towards the representation in the book.
0: Now, um, where are you located at? I forgot to ask you in the beginning.
1: Oh yeah, I'm in uh, Burbank, California.
0: okay. Well, I'm located south of the city of Pittsburgh. I'm in (laughs) what you consider rural America. And we are about five to 10 years behind, we say, the West Coast. And we're just starting to notice some of this stuff where people are finally acknowledging who they are and and being able to say who they are and, and a lot of things like that. And I was in a situation yesterday with a bunch of women that were my age. And my 14-year-old daughter, who is very 2021, let's just say that, and they were talking about this, and my daughter was trying to explain to them the pronouns that they have to use, and these older women couldn't understand why. And and it was interesting watching a Mm 14-year-old talking to 50-year-olds about how society is changing, because the 50-year-olds, it's not that they don't want to see it, they don't understand it.
1: Mm -hmm. you know it's really interesting though that you say that about the 50 year olds and my parents are in their 60s but they grew up you know during the the 60s and 70s where everything was like revolution right right and everything was like change uh, don't trust anyone over 30 Uh like like that was the whole boomer mindset and it's really interesting though how like my parents' generation is so conservative now, so resistant to change, so resistant to, uh, to hey maybe you know, basically the Gen Z generation is like, how can we make things more inclusive, more fair for everyone? And how can we allow people to be more authentic and live authentically? And then, uh, you know, you say, hey, maybe people can't be easily categorized into male or female. Maybe people should be free to either marry whoever they want or not get married, or, you know, be in a relationship or not be in a relationship or be in a relationship with multiple people. You know gen z right. is like all of that is fine but the boomers who used to be like freedom for everyone is like no
0: yeah no and it, <laughs> change and, and, it, and it's the whole thing about the feminists too back then are mm-hmm. becoming very conservative in the older age because they're again they're afraid of change and they don't want to see things that they know it go into some direction that they don't recognize and that's what i think is very interesting and your book in some ways, even though it was going on in 1904, no one really knew about it. And I mean, not only in Scandinavia, but I'm sure here in the United States, it was, it was here too, but it was just hidden so well that no one knew about it.
1: Yeah, well, I'm lucky enough to, I grew up in San Francisco, and it, San Francisco has always had a very thriving uh, queer and diverse community, like all the way back in the early 1900s. Uh, right. So there were, there, there were sections of town that were kind of uh, devoted to to people who, whether it's artists or whether it's, uh, you know, people who don't quite fit into uh, the conventional way of doing things could easily find a place in San Francisco where they were, they were totally accepted. Um, But, but uh, what's, what's really interesting is that things were getting published, uh, you know, uh, these identities were being explored, but they wouldn't weren't necessarily being published by like mass media necessarily. They were published in the form of pamphlets that you would hand out amongst your community of people. And it would kind of be like an underground thing. Um, But back in the day, there were even, you know, in the 1900s and early 18 or late 1800s, um in English language there were you know there were gay romance novels and even one uh the er I was able to find the earliest gay romance novel with a happy ending where they uh where the couple gets together at the end uh Mm -hmm. and it was written I oh I really should have the date written down but I think it was like around uh, 1899 1901 um so these these stories did exist and they were out there you just have to do a little digging to find them
0: So what made you write about this? Okay, for the time period, you told me, because you were interested Mm -hmm. in it, and there was another author that you looked up to, but why did you decide to go and make your characters queer in the book? Well, it's...
1: yeah. Well, it's an identity that I identify with. Okay. Um, I would I would identify as queer and I would say that I'm on the, as far as gender identity, I would identify as non-binary and I would say, you know, haven't quite figured out the sexual orientation thing, probably on the the asexual spectrum, but I my main character, Asta, she is she was the the language that you would use today to describe her would be asexual and aromantic and she's not interested in a romantic relationship but she's very interested in a a very meaningful platonic relationship with her friends and she kind of has this fantasy of like what if we live together what if what if i could be in a relationship with someone but it's not like a marriage but it's a meaningful relationship where we're together forever and we we are able to express our feelings for each other but it's not necessarily in a romantic way and so that's kind of the thoughts that she's grappling with in the story and the uh And disability is also something that's represented. And the disability that's represented is something I deal with. I'm hard of hearing and I wear hearing aids. um, And a girl back in 1904 wouldn't have hearing aids. Um, So her hard of hearingness is considered kind of a fault. And this is the time when eugenics is coming around. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that she is flawed and she has... uh, and she should be grateful that anyone at all wants to marry her because she's, she's uh, I, I guess you could say kind of like flawed in some way, right? Um, I also have representation of uh, spinal injuries, which I have, and post-concussion syndrome. And, um, and so I, I, I really like thinking of what would it be like for a person back in that time period where the... The mentality and the ideology is a little bit more um, that if something happened to you and you're disabled in some way, it's because of a character flaw or it's because you're not religious enough or, you know, God is punishing you for something. Um, And and so playing with that was really interesting and especially having the characters kind of deprogram themselves from this mindset that's very judgmental of them and, you know, find comfort in their love and their support of each other.
0: So were there any situations you wrote about in the book that you could identify with? Was there any of you put into this character?
1: Yeah, I, you know, a lot of authors say, no, the book is, has nothing to do with me. But I would say uh, people who read the book will be like, oh, you're writing about yourself. (laughs) And yeah, the book is very, um, you know, I, parts of me are in all the characters and uh, it's very much a personal story that's coming okay. from my experience.
0: <laughs> so the, the one thing, and, and, and maybe in that culture in, in 1904, they didn't get it, but when in, in 2021, um, when you think about two people Living together, the first thing everybody jumps to is sex, mm-hmm. which probably isn't even their one-eighth of the time, but they're just roommates and they're just friends, they're companions and stuff like that. Were they dealing with that same situation in
1: 1904? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a little bit of a different sort of situation obviously if it's a girl Mm -hmm. um living with two men that that is something that comes up where where people are like you know they think of her as quite deviant for for this decision of hers um and she's like no that's not what's happening (laughs) Um, and so that's that that that's kind of a source of yes she's she's discovering herself but what they think of her is much different than the situation that it actually is and so the idea of things being a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced than the way the town is viewing things is uh something that is explored in the book
0: as i i mentioned a few minutes ago and as i listened to you talk um I have a difficulty with labels. I always have. And I'm a 55 year old white straight male that lives in a middle-class community um, and so on and so forth. But still I have a problem identifying with not, Mm -hmm. not, I I mean, using terms to identify. Let me rephrase that. Why does the word, because what I think of the word queer meaning, I don't think it means the same thing to you because I hear it more as a Slur. Negative. Yes, thank yeah. you. Uh, so
1: what does it mean to you? Yeah, I actually have I have a problem with labels too, because I feel like like anything that is describing anyone who is like non cis hetero is there's there's so much cumbersome language around it. Um, I've started using queer just because when I was at in San Francisco, at San Francisco State, uh, at, we have a queer studies program. And so that that is the word, and it's a very inclusive word too. It encompasses everyone. And it didn't have the slur type uh, of vibe to it that I've noticed that many people who are um, of like a either a Gen X or a Boomer generation associate it more with like a slur. So, so there's all these cumbersome issues. And then if, you know, some people say LGBTQ plus or plus right. I, and that's also a wordful, that's not like a mouthful. And so something that I've grappled with is like, I don't like labels. Why or why is anything labels? Exactly. You don't have to like label straight people. Like you don't have to <laughs> like, no. you know, so I totally get that. Like, why do we need labels at all? Um, but y- but yeah, I, I, I it would be nice if there was just something that didn't make the the boomers and the Gen Xers kind of cringe a little bit, and then there was something that wasn't a mouthful like LGBTQIA. Um, so so I I just people's good. <laughs>
0: well, the, the reason I asked that is because again, I would have never brought it up mm-hmm. if, and I would have just talked to you as Carly. I would never, but. Mm-hmm. It's written in the book. That's what the book is about. That's the Mm -hmm. subject you're tackling. And if it would have never been there, I would have never known Mm -hmm. because of the way it is. But I went when you were talking about what the word queer, this is what it means to me, which is why I have a problem with it. When I was a kid growing up in the 70s, the word meant odd. Mm. And I don't see you as being odd. Yeah. And that's where and that's where my issue is, because the other words would be odd, strange, unusual, funny, peculiar, peculiar and bizarre. I don't see that way. I mean, I just don't understand why we need to use it. And the whole idea uh, of trying to explain it. And you're right. LGBTQ is a mouthful. And when I say it, I have to think so hard to say it that I don't get the letters mixed up because Mm -hmm. I will mess it up and i'll probably offend somebody if i do that um but that's not my intention so
1: yeah um yeah i it it, it, yeah it'd be nice if if there was well the good thing though is language is fluid and maybe eventually something will come up (laughs) language is always changing Um, someone will come up with it with a with another word and It'll be great, and maybe we'll get to a place where we don't necessarily have to put people into you're this or this. You just everyone's everyone, <laughs> and and it just we become normalized for being human. So
0: you mentioned about being in a study group. If you don't mind me asking, how old okay. are you?
1: Oh, I am. Oh gosh, let's just say this: I am a millennial, <laughs> okay. and so that gives a vibe. Um, I'm. Wait, you, I gave my age. You give yours. <laughs> I am 40.
0: Oh, okay. I would have never guessed that. I mean, really, <laughs> I would have never imagined that. I would have figured 10 years younger. That's impressive. Oh,
1: Well, well, thank you. Yeah, I was born in 1981.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was in high school in 1981. But anyhow, uh, so when you and this, and this now, I'm, I'm going back on the personal uh, mm-hmm. side. When you were growing up, when did you know that you were not the same as everybody else?
1: Oh gosh. Well, I thought, well, here's the thing though. Um, I thought I was because I was very, like, I felt like I was just the default. Um, so, uh, I do remember in fifth grade, a lot of people um, being like really talking about boys at that point. And I okay. was really not interested in boys at all. <laughs> and, um, but I still thought I was like the default because I'm like a norm, you know, like, like I, I, I of course had like uh, lesbian friends. I had gay friends. I had, uh, there was one trans uh, friend who I had and I, so, but, like, uh, yeah, I I didn't, um, I guess, I, you know, I didn't really think of, like, applying a label to myself. Um, I did, in college, uh, learn a Greek, uh, Greek mythology. I was really into Greek mythology, mm-hmm. and I learned about uh, the Greek goddess Artemis, or Diana, and I was, like, I identify with her because she is awesome. She like never marries. She's okay. like she's like the the she 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 she's like guardian of the animals. And I'm like that is my identity. I'm like Artemis slash Diana is is my vibe. Um, but yeah, I I still that's why I struggle with lab- labels and I struggle with. Uh, with, uh, anything. Cause I do think of myself as such the default. I'm like, I, I feel like I'm very generic, <laughs> like, okay, I but I don't have any desire to be in a relationship or get married.
0: <laughs> um, have you gotten the pressure from your mother about children? Or yes. About
1: which is bizarre because, uh, like having children like ruined my mom's life. <laughs> Like I, I only started kind of talking to her about this recently, but I'm like, wow, you were, you, you know, on a direction in your life. And then all of a sudden it was derailed by being stuck with kids for like the next 20 years of your life. But, you know, and I just remember growing up, she was not happy having kids at all. Right. There's some people who are like meant to be a mother and who mm-hmm. are meant to be like a wife and stuff. And then there's some people who are like, Like that was, that, that's not, they got stuck doing it, but it's not something that made them happy. And I think, like, I think my parents were the, they got stuck doing it, but it wasn't something that made them happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that was a little bit weird. You know, I I remember her saying a few things like, oh, I guess I'm never going to have grandchildren, you know, that sort of thing. But now that I'm like an aware adult who's like, can look back on things, I can be like, Wait a minute. I I think she now knows that like that would not be something that would make make me happy at all. But I think she she can can kind of realize that, oh, probably that like desire for grandchildren comes from just uh, doing things the way things have always been done and not necessarily, uh, oh, I want to have my child be happy <laughs> you know that right. sort of societal thing.
0: pressure yeah I got that's
1: you. yeah that's the word i'm looking for um, yeah
0: because now that's interesting to me because you're saying your mother wasn't happy do you feel if your mother and dad were not putting that situation that your mother would accept your lifestyle more if she would have been single all those years not to say that she doesn't but i'm just throwing that out there
1: yeah i well i think she's happy being married um and i i think uh i think having kids though now she's looking now that she's realizing things she's like okay that was not something that made me happy um uh yeah i think now though she's she's in a place where she's uh she's happy i i think she acknowledges that like uh her kids Because both me and my sister have no desire to have children at all. (laughs) And so her, that her kids are, are probably much happier not having children. And it's something that, you know, that she's accepted.
0: Have you heard the one saying, but if you don't, who's going to take care of you?
1: Oh, I think that's, (laughs) oh my God. So, okay. If you have kids, like you have a 50, 50 chance of your children hating you yeah. <laughs> or, or like just being like, okay, I'm right. going to, I'm going to just take care of my parent. Like, and I just have a feeling like the, the chance of my child hating me would probably be higher in like the 95% <laughs> thing. So I think I'm, it's a much smarter, uh, use of my time and money to invest in a good growth ETF. Gotcha. And then by the time that I'm retiring, I will have a good chunk of change to put into a nice retirement home. <laughs> so rather than burdensome some poor, poor child with taking care of me in my old
0: age. So you look at the nineties, you look at the, the, the two thousands. Now we're in 2021. What changes are you seeing and are they for the better? Now, let's not even talk about the last four years. Mm-hmm. Let's talk 2016 now where we're at right now.
1: Um, well, you know, I remember maybe I maybe I have like rose colored glasses. Or okay. whatever. but I remember Do you remember like the years leading up to Obama, like around the time Obama was elected. Yes. Like it felt like. Like around that time, it's like we were entering this era of like this is how things are supposed to be like like I remember like like everything was was kind of felt like it was moving forward, and there was like progress, and we're like, oh, you know, equality is a possibility, and I think we were just really well, I think maybe I was not aware of how the rest of the country was right. happening. Cause I was, I'm like a California person and I'm like in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. And we're like, Obama's going to be president. You know, racism's over. <laughs> like yeah. and, and We're all going to like sing Kumbaya and like hold hands and it's going to be awesome. And then, I'll, then all of a sudden, I think during the Obama administration, there was all of this, like racism that came up. And it was shocking for me. I remember the first time, like someone who I knew who was like a Facebook friend shared, set a racist thing. And I was like, wait a minute, like I had never seen that sort of thing before. And I think with, with Facebook also kind of coming up around that time, suddenly you were connecting with people who were like, in in places that weren't San Francisco or Los Angeles at least for me and I was like whoa mind blown I had no idea people thought like this and maybe it was like I can't tell if it was um just me suddenly being aware of stuff like that like like hatred and that sort of thing or if it was like this has always been there um and now it's like it's bubbling to the surface because um, because now they like they have a black president to attack. Um, anyway, my, my my mind was blown. I became aware of things that I had never been aware of before, and um, it was yeah, it was it was a it's been eye opening, and I think maybe the illusion of progress was just that it was an illusion um, because I think we have to reckon with the fact that there are a lot of forces in our country that envision society being a certain way which is a very white a very like heterosexual a very I guess you could say like a very rigid sort of way and my San Francisco California upbringing is way different than, than the way things are elsewhere in the country.
0: Well, do you see the, the again, I don't want to use this word, but I have to, mm-hmm. that your lifestyle is becoming more acceptable.
1: Um, I would say there is this sudden rise in um, pushback that, Seems to have happened in the last couple of years. Okay. And again, maybe I maybe I just I wasn't aware of it before, uh, but it seemed like like just like what's happening in Texas where oh
0: yeah, yeah.
1: the where uh, the Texas well the, like the education system in Texas is like banning a bunch of books, um, and there is you know, a lot of pushback on women's rights Mm -hmm. happening and yeah. And, and suddenly like, you know, there's, yeah, it it just seems like there's a lot of pushback uh, that's coming up. And again, maybe it's because I I wasn't aware of this before and now I'm suddenly being aware of it, or uh, maybe it's because there has been progress, but whenever there is progress, there always has to be pushback against it.
0: Because I've noticed that some people that were that always talked about not approving of it now has someone in their family that has said, Mm -hmm. this is who I am. And now the family has to deal with it. And they're dealing with it in the way of accepting it, who it is, because it's their child or it's a mm-hmm. relative or whatever it is. And you always want that person to be happy. So I'm starting to notice that because and I'm not talking large groups. I'm talking individuals mm-hmm. that may have not understood what was going on before and had someone in their family who was this way, but could never come out mm-hmm. and tell them. So I don't know. Well, it, it, it's one of those things that's always yeah. going to be ongoing that we're going to have to figure out. But. With you, with now, the publishing company you work, you're working with, that's Soho Teen.
1: Yeah. So what,
0: and what types of books they uh, deal with? Is it all young adult or...
1: Yeah, Soho Teen is an imprint of Soho Press, and Soho Teen is all young adult. It's all uh, books for teens, and their books are amazing. I I was so lucky because I had been familiar with Soho Teen for a while, and like some of my favorite books have come out from Soho Teen. Uh, so, uh, but their their main publisher company is uh soho press and they do a lot of like literary fiction and crime and thrillers as well so they the whole company does all genres
0: okay and um uh, do you see the next book you're writing going to soho team
1: i would love that to happen it 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 depends on a lot of things uh but that that hopefully that's what happens and uh and I would love to keep working with them definitely.
0: So the book you said is coming out November 9th, correct? Yes. Okay, because the original day I had was November 2nd. But
1: oh yeah, it got pushed back because of okay. supply chain or supply chain. I call him gotcha. supply chain because gotcha. I imagine this little gremlin like <laughs> like eating up all the paper gotcha. and like <laughs> destroying all the ink. But That's yeah, we idea. have there's this problem right now with the economy. And supplies not reaching where they need to be. So like Mm -hmm. publishers are running out of paper and ink and cardboard and all the things that are needed to make books. So dates are getting pushed back.
0: And with that being said, is there going to be a digital copy of the book?
1: Yes, there's going to be, it's going to be an ebook. It's going to be an audio book as well. Uh, So on uh, November 9th, uh, any format that you could want, you'll probably find it.
0: Now, are you going to be reading the audio book?
1: no <laughs> um there are two actors that they hired who are really great i don't know if i'm allowed to like say who the actors are yet because i haven't seen it i won't tell anyone yeah <laughs> i haven't seen it published anywhere like on audible.com or anything. So I'll just say th- they are going to be amazing because they are like my top picks for like the actors who I had for these characters. So okay. the narrators are going to be really fantastic. So if you're an audio book fan, it's going to be an awesome audiobook.
0: Okay. Cause I thought maybe you would read it, but, um,
1: that's a, Yeah. That's a big, that's a big like task. It's like seven hours <laughs> to read an audiobook. You don't do it all at once though. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, let's just say this. I'm really glad someone else is doing it.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. So um, has there been any uh, previews done of the book and anybody saying what they think of it so far?
1: Yes, I've been really lucky. Uh, there, the whole trade review thing. So there's like these trade journals that review books and like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus and Booklist and Bookpage. And there's a whole bunch of other ones, but they've all been really enthusiastic and positive. So I've been really thrilled to see that. And then on good, you can go on Goodreads and you can see some, uh, people who got advanced copies of the book have been leaving their reviews um so that's been really nice and it's been very educational as well when you whenever you get like feedback from like the general public and you're like oh wow this is how people are receiving it you learn a lot as an artist for sure
0: so this is your first book correct yes okay and have you thought about what the second one's going to be about
1: Yes. Well, I've written a second book. Um, It's more magical. It takes place on a magical Scandinavian island and it deals with a family that's cursed to turn into animals at some point in their life, but they never know when it's going to happen. And uh, so it deals with sorcery and all sorts of magical things that I love. Um, And I've also thought about uh, doing a sequel for The Reckless Kind, but that all would depend on how well this book does. But in my head, there's like ideas marinating. Okay. okay. And then I have a couple of contemporary uh, young adult books that I've, I've finished that are in the revision process.
0: So in other words, you're just mainly focusing on young adult books. Yeah. So what fascinates you about writing for young adults?
1: I love the, the, and like the anxiety and the, the, I, I just love that teen experience of learning who you are and, okay. and ex, disco- self-discovery and also um, just the amount of emotion that happens when you are a teenager where everything feels like such a big deal. And as people get older, the voice becomes a little bit more jaded, a little bit more like, ah, well, falling in love again, this has happened, you know, whereas when you're a teenager and like you're falling in love for the first time, or you're living out on your own for the first time, it's just such a big deal. And it, I think that's, it's really fascinating.
0: So I was also looking at your bio and everything else you do, because you seem very busy um, from your art to teaching to everything else so is writing what you want your first career to be or is there something else that you want to do and writing is just your backup plan
1: oh no well writing fully takes on Like every spare moment of my time, because really, you can't. Like, if you're gonna focus on writing, you have to like 100% go all in. So, I I, yeah, I'm definitely passionate about writing and books and um and all of that. I do love drawing and I love making art, but that has had to take a little side. He had to get pushed to the side a little bit just because writing takes up so much uh, mental space and energy. Um. So, yeah, it's my main focus.
0: So, Carly, I appreciate it. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, Is there anything that I didn't cover that you want to let everybody know about?
1: Yes. So I will be, so the book will be coming out November 9th and there's going to be a launch event hosted by Chevalier's books in Los Angeles. And I think it's going to be either November 9th or November 10th. I'm not sure. uh, but I'll be in conversation with another author named Rosie Thor. Um, so that will be, uh, really great. And, uh, I will be posting uh, info on that on my Twitter, at Carly L. Heath, and my Instagram as well, which is at Carly Lynn Heath, L-Y-N Heath. And you can find out more about what I'm doing and see all my social medias at uh, my website, (laughs) (laughs) www.carlyheathauthor.com.
0: Can you do me a big favor? Yes. Hold the book up again. Oh, yeah. (laughs) there you go so it's the reckless kind coming out on november 9th yeah definitely carly thank you very much i really appreciate it i wish you the best of luck and i'd love to have you back on again
1: thank you so much for having me bill it's been really fun
0: i've really enjoyed myself you have a great rest of your day and uh,
1: we'll talk to you next time definitely talk to you next time thank you
0: well, a big thank you goes out to Carly Heath for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Had a great conversation. Learned a few things and hope you did too because that's what the program's all about, one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Again, if you want to find out more information about Carly and her books, you can check her out at her website, which is carlyheathauthor.com. Again, that's carlyheathauthor.com. I'll post that in the description also. And one more thing, the name of the book is called the Reckless Kind, coming out November 9th, 2021. Again, she said it was supposed to come out the second, but due to uh, supply chain issues, <laughs> paper and everything else, they had to push it off. But digital copies will also be available on that date. And also the audio book, which she didn't want to tell me who it was, because honestly, I wasn't going to tell anybody, really. So everybody, you have a great one. We'll talk to you next time here, one-on-one with Bill Alexander. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that...